Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Thank you for your welcome. It's good to be back with all of you after being away for a number of weeks this summer to rest and recalibrate and spend some quality time with the Lord alone and also with my dear wife Gwen and our family. Um, I've also appreciated the opportunity to touch base with um, a number of you at our various campuses, uh, not only this summer, but through different parts of the year when I'm not speaking here. And uh, just to hear of God's amazing stories in the lives of people. Just this um, last week, I was in the atrium out here at uh, Central Campus and and just um, probably talked to 30 people or more, heard story after story of how God um, has changed their life, not unlike the one that you heard, uh, the couple we met earlier um, in the service, and um, how God was using um, people to impact neighbors and work associates uh, for his glory. So while this has been a a challenging time economically in our city, uh, financially in our church, God continues to move and to change the hearts and lives of people uh, among us. Um, Did you know, for example, that just over the summer, uh, 60 people were baptized? Isn't that great? Uh, 35 children, uh, thir- 36 children uh, came to faith in Christ at, at our um, uh, kids' camp, and a number of adults came to faith in Christ as well. So God is being so good and faithful among us. Now, I, I, I do trust that you had a good summer as well. And in fact, I'm just going to invite you to turn to the person next to you or someone that's close to you and uh, just introduce yourself and just to share uh, with one another one highlight from this summer, okay? So just take a moment and do that. Um, People look at me and say, can we do that in church? You bet. So uh, go ahead, meet somebody and uh, talk about your summer. Okay, about now you should be changing and the other person should be talking, okay? Time to switch. Well, that's really funny. You know, it happened in the first service too. When I told people to switch, it died down. So I guess just one of you ended up doing the talking anyways. You know, I was... um, I was talking about summer highlights um, uh, with a couple of guys here the other day, and one, one, guy, one guy's summer highlight was he had a goal of losing uh, 10 pounds over the summer and only has 15 more to go. <laughs> but seriously, we had two big highlights this summer as a family. First of all, in early July, in fact, week one and week two of July, God blessed us with two more grandchildren, our son Michael and... and um, Our son, Michael, and his wife, Becky, had their fourth child, a boy named Liam Michael Shore, and uh, he's brother to Angel and Belle and Lincoln. And, uh, and then our son, um, Matthew, and his wife, Arian, had their fifth child, a girl named Elise Grace Shore, and uh, she is sister to Ella, Ethan, Evan, and Emma, uh, the five E's. Uh, So that makes 11 grandchildren and (laughs) our 12th little disciple is on his way or her way uh, due to arrive sometime in November. So God's good. Yes. Now, uh, a second highlight for us this summer is that Gwen, um, and that's my wife, by the way, I've got always point that out. Um, My wife Gwen and I, uh, we celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. Yeah. (laughs) 
just really, uh, you know, hate to admit this to you, but we got married when we were 10. It's just so you know, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but you know, my goodness, how the years fly by. You know, uh, we were only married for about five years when we arrived here at Center Street to work with the youth and, and the young adults. And, and here we are almost 35 years later. Um, but, you know, we just want you to know that um, we're still so excited uh, about our walk with God. Our marriage um, uh, is, is rich. It's growing deeper every year. And I, I say it often, but I want to just say it again this time of year that I just love being your senior pastor. And Gwen and I can't imagine doing anything more fulfilling than serving Jesus alongside all of you as we reach um, our city our world for Jesus. Amen? Amen. So would you stand with me as we dedicate this time in the Word to the Lord? Lord, we again just want to thank you and praise you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for um, your Word, um, the living Word, Jesus Christ, the written word of God, the scriptures. And Lord, as we now look at them, I pray that you would, um, Lord, you would just help us to focus. You'd soften our hearts. And then, Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So we've just come through a season in which we focused on two major themes on our weekend messages. In the first sermon series, we focused on why we believe what we believe. A series that sought to answer many of the questions that people at your workplace and in your community are asking. Questions about why believe in God, why believe in Jesus, why believe in the resurrection, why suffering, and all those other questions that are hugely um, important to deal with and grapple with. And the second series we then went into uh, was called Christianity 101. Uh, we went a step further uh, to explore what we believe as Christians, laying a foundation f particularly for newer Christians, but for us all, touching on basic doctrines of the Christian faith, including the nature of God, of Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit, how to study the Bible, and so forth. Well, this fall, we're going to go back to another uh, book study. Uh, you know, over the years, um, I was just kind of reflecting. Uh, uh, we've preached through uh, the entire Old Testament, and uh, there's 39 books, and also uh, we've preached through 12 books in the New Testament. And in my time with the Lord this summer, I really sensed him calling me to, to uh, just to do a study on the book of James. And so that's what we're going to do because I really want to do what God calls me to do. Amen? Amen. So now before we get into it, I, I want to encourage you to read the book of James a number of times in your quiet time this fall. Do your own study and come to this time of worship uh, with an expectant, prayerful spirit. Come in a, with a right in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people because you will receive so much more. Pray for those serving behind the scenes in various ways, those teaching and shepherding our children and our youth, those leading our worship, and also for whoever it is that's speaking. Okay, so open up your Bible to the book of James. You'll find it um, uh, near the end of the New Testament, sandwiched between Hebrews and uh, 1 Peter. And we're just going to look at verse 1. And this is what it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, in this message, I want to introduce you to the book of James and to the author of this book, because there is really quite a story behind the James who wrote this book. The book or the letter of James uh, was most likely written somewhere between 45 to 47 A.D., which means it was one of the um, first of the New Testament books written. And that many of those who read this letter from James, many of those people um, were alive when Jesus walked the face of the earth. Um, they would have heard Jesus teach. 
They would have uh, witnessed some of his miracles. They would have possibly witnessed his death and even his resurrection. James 1.1 tells us that this letter was directed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, which is really referring to the new Israel or the church, Christians who were once part of the church in Jerusalem. Many believe that the church of Jerusalem at its peak had grown to over 100,000 people. It was a significant movement. But then a great persecution that we read about in Acts chapter 12 broke out against the church and all of those Christians who of course initially met, most of them were Jews were scattered throughout the then known world. Now James was written by James, obviously. <laughs> um, but the question is, which James? Even in Jesus' immediate circle there were several fellows uh, named James. There were two of the disciples who had the name James. Well, almost all biblical scholars agree it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. Now, James was Jesus' half-brother because his father was Joseph, while Jesus, of course, is the Son of God. However, James and Jesus had the same mother, Mary, and grew up together in the same household. In fact, look it up sometime in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, or over in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, some of the siblings, of, I mean, some of the children that Mary and Joseph had after Jesus, their names are listed there. One of the brothers uh, uh, of James was Jude, who um, wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament as well. It should also be noted that it appears that Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, died sometime before Jesus um, began his public ministry. Now imagine what it must have been like for James to grow up with an older brother who is God in the flesh. I mean, you may have an older brother or sister who acts like they're God <laughs> or think that they're God, but you know better, don't you? Jesus, on the other hand, was God. Chuck Swindoll writes, No second-born son or daughter could possibly fathom what it must have been like to suffer second-child syndrome with an older brother who never sinned. <laughs> but James did. Can you imagine? Jesus always washed his hands properly before supper. He always did his chores quickly and with delight. He always obeyed. And then there was James, born with a sinful nature like the rest of us, living in the shadow of a big brother who was God in the flesh. Being far from perfect, younger brother James had a built-in problem right from the start. I mean, imagine how hard it must have been for James to hear Mary and Joseph say, James, why can't you be more like Jesus? I'm sure that that led to just a little bit of resentment in the life of James and his siblings, trying to live up to this perfect standard that was set by their older brother. But as hard as it must have been for James to live with an older brother who always made the right decisions, who always um, made good choices, it must have been equally hard for him not to like him. Because, you see, Jesus would have always treated him with kindness and with respect. Jesus would have loved and cared for him along the way. It's pretty hard to despise a person like that. But all that changed when Jesus began his public ministry. When Jesus began healing people, when he began teaching in the countryside, he began um, doing miracles and driving out demons and referring to himself as the Son of God, making statements like, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. Or when he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. We read in Mark chapter 3, 
verse 21, that his family believed that Jesus was out of his mind. He'd lost it. In fact, they, they showed up where he was ministering one day, wanting to see him. And the reason they wanted to see him is they essentially wanted to escort him home. They wanted to take him home. In the same way that families today will attempt to rescue a family member who's addicted to drugs or who's trapped in some strange cult. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we read that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. And that would have included James. In short, when Jesus began to verbalize who he was and began to exercise his father's authority and his father's power by healing people and doing other miracles, James made a decision about Jesus. He didn't believe in him. Oh, James knew that Jesus was an incredibly gifted person. He knew that he had a pure heart and a loving disposition. And like Pilate, he could find no fault in him. That is, until Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. That was it for James. That's where he drew a line. And it appears that James and his siblings abandoned Jesus at this point. And we know that because at the crucifixion, the only member of his immediate family who was there was his mother Mary. And she was there with a, a few other women and Jesus' disciple, John. The rest of the family were nowhere to be seen. In fact, the Bible suggests that James and his siblings abandoned Mary as well. Likely because she refused to distance herself from Jesus. And we know that because of what Jesus said to Mary and to John while he was on the cross. You see, in that day when an older son was about to die and his mother was a widow, it was customary for the older son to entrust the care of his mother to the next oldest son. And yet we read in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and his friend John, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And he told the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, notice this, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. He cared for her. Jesus would not have asked John to do this if Mary still had the support of James and the rest of her family. And so at this point in the story, it's clearly evident that James didn't believe in Jesus, was embarrassed to be associated with him, and wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Now fast forward the story to the book of Acts. And we encounter James again in the narrative, but it's clearly evident that something dramatic has happened to James. He no longer is ashamed of Jesus. He's no longer running from Jesus. Shockingly, he is a key leader of the church that Christ came to establish. He is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, a church that probably grew to well over 10,000 people. Like I said, even some believe up to 100,000. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul refers to James as the pillar of that pivotal church. And so the question is, what happened to James? What caused James to move from wanting nothing to do with Jesus, being embarrassed to even be associated with him, to being one of the key leaders in a movement in the church that Jesus came to establish? Well, I have no doubt that it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, in other words, at the time that Paul wrote this, though some have fallen asleep. That's not in church, by the way. That means they have passed away. They died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, referring to Paul. But you see, right here in this passage, we're told that Jesus made a special resurrection appearance to his half-brother, James. After dying on the cross and being put in a tomb, Jesus rose from the grave as he said he would, and he appeared to his brother, James, and essentially said, Okay, James, I know you've been thinking I've lost it. But now do you believe that I'm more than the nice brother you grew up with? Now do you believe that I am who I said I was? That I'm the Son of God? Beth Moore says that Jesus appeared to the people who most needed to see him. He appeared to Mary Magdalene to affirm the fact that his power was such that she could be permanently delivered from the demons that had plagued her. Jesus appeared to Saul, later called Paul, on the road to Damascus to help him turn from persecutor of Christians into the church's greatest missionary. He appeared to Peter so that the big fishermen could know that he had indeed been forgiven for denying his Lord. And Jesus appeared to James so that he could go from mocking his half-brother to the realization that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. When Jesus appeared to James alive after his death and burial, James' worldview was turned on its head. No longer did he see Jesus as just the good and amazingly gifted older brother that he grew up with. No longer did he believe that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic as he did for a period of time. No, when James saw the resurrected Christ, all the dots connected for him and he knew that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Lord God, the King of the universe. And that truth completely changed James from the inside out. In that moment, James repented, which means to change your mind. James changed his mind about who Jesus was. He believed in him, but he also believed him. He surrendered his life completely to Jesus, and he became a wholly committed friend and follower of Jesus from that moment on there was no turning back and we see evidence of this in the scriptures look again at verse 1 it says James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ you know James could have really powered up when he wrote this letter you know get a little bit of extra credibility by referring to himself as the brother of Jesus. He could have referred to himself as the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He could have referred to himself as an apostle the way that Paul and Peter did. But he doesn't. Because you see, he's had a total change of mind. He's had a total change of heart. It's no longer about him. It's about Jesus. He knows his identity. His worth is found in his relationship with Jesus, who God says he is, not what anybody else says he is. And so he's content. He's humble enough to simply refer to himself as a servant of the Lord. And a humble servant he was. 
the secular historian Josephus. He referred to him as James the Just because he had a reputation for being such a godly, holy man. He was also referred to as camel knees because he prayed so much his knees were callous like that of a camel. James had a powerful testimony. He influenced so many people to give their lives to Jesus Christ that the religious leaders of his day, they just couldn't stand him anymore. And in 62 AD, they'd had enough. They grabbed him and they took him to the top of the temple. And they told him if he recanted his faith, they would set him free. Now, we don't know what James said in that moment, if he said anything. But I just imagine him saying something like, how can I deny the God of the universe? How can I deny the one who created me and is the source of every breath I take? How can I deny the one that I grew up with the one who died for my sins, who was buried, and who rose again. I saw him again. He's not just my brother, you know. No, he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he's more than worthy of my eternal allegiance. I will never deny him. And history tells us that they threw him off the top of the temple. And then they used clubs to beat him to death. You see, when you meet the real Jesus, like James did, your mind, your heart, your life is changed forever. Not just on the inside, but it begins to ooze out of your pores like it did in the life of James. And that is the heartbeat of the book of James. A faith that is real. Not only on the inside, but also on the outside. You see, the overarching theme of James is to help us become mature in our faith. And to help us understand what faith really is. James teaches that following Jesus involves more than just knowing the truth. It involves living the truth. In James chapter 2 verse 14, James asks, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Down in verse 17 he says, Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James teaches that following Jesus involves more than just listening to the truth. It involves more than coming to services like this, looking for fresh insights to add to our Bible knowledge. It also involves doing what it says. In James 1.22, he writes, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. See, James is teaching the full gospel here. Too many churches today are teaching half the gospel. In some churches, it's all about believing in the right things. As long as you got that part down, you're good. In other churches, it's all about doing the right things. It's about, you know, caring for your neighbor and doing that. Well, the faith issue, ah, it's not that important. Just do things. Be a good person. And James says true faith involves both believing the truth and living the truth. Faith without works, he says, is dead. But friends, the reverse is also true. Works without faith is also dead. Suppose after this service you uh, head for the parking lot and you find a person lying on the ground motionless behind your car. Now, how would you know the body that you see lying there is dead or alive? 
Now, I realize that some of you probably would be screaming, running through the parking lot, help, help, and all the rest of it, and I understand that, but if you've had some first aid training, there are two things that you would check on. You would check to see if the person is breathing and if the person has a pulse. Well, faith is like that body. If that body has no pulse, if, it ha- if it's not breathing for a certain time period, it will be declared dead. And James says it's no different for our faith. If there is no movement, if there is no action, no pulse, there's no living out our faith, if there's no application to all that we're learning, our faith, he says, is dead. He's just calling it for what it is. And this is James's concern. I mean, you can believe and profess all the right things. You can know your Bible inside out and vigorously defend the integrity of the Bible. You can sing your heart out praising God in public worship. You can declare that Jesus is the living God and sovereign ruler in your life. But if you're not following him, And I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about the direction of your life. I'm talking about a desire in your heart that wants to follow Jesus and do his will. If you are picking and choosing what you're going to apply to your life, or turn a deaf ear consistently to the spirit of what the Spirit of God is calling you to do. You're not only missing out on the incredible faith-building adventures that God wants you to experience, but you need to examine your heart. You really do, and the Bible challenges us to do that from time to time. You need to examine your heart to see whether Jesus is in fact the Lord of your life or whether your trust is in something or someone else, whether there is a counterfeit God that you're hanging on to that you refuse to let go of. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying what we believe is unimportant. No, what we believe about God, about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the gospel, is very important because it's the truth. It's the foundation upon which we stand. And the reality is, what we do is determined by what we believe. Neither am I saying that what we hear is unimportant. Knowing the truth, believing the truth, living the truth begins with and is based on hearing the truth. And folks, that's why teaching the scriptures is such a high priority in our services and why we strongly encourage you to make our worship times together on the weekend a priority in your life. Don't just, you know, add it to an already overcrowded schedule that you kind of, you know, that happens once in a while. Get into a regular habit of it. So again, I'm not saying hearing God's word is unimportant. Hearing is necessary, knowing is necessary, believing is necessary, but they can't stand by themselves. And here's why. In Matthew 7, 26, Jesus said this, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. He's saying it's foolishness. Hearing, believing alone can't stand by themselves. It's like a house on sand. Storms are going to come. That house is going to crumble. But if you back up two verses to verse 24, this is what Jesus said. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He's saying that's 
what an alive faith is. James is saying a faith that is alive and that stands the storms of life is a faith that includes believing and doing. You can't divorce one from the other. I mean, if you read James 2.19, it reminds us that even the demons believe in God. So you see, believing is not just saying I accept the facts. Believing is giving your life into the hands of the one that you say you believe in and following him. So in short, a faith that is genuine, a faith that is alive, evidences itself first and foremost in a close and a growing friendship with Jesus, a relationship with him, and secondly, it evidences itself through walking with Jesus in obedience. Daryl Johnson gives a helpful illustration to help us understand how our trust in Jesus evidences itself in doing what he asks us to do. Let's say that I'm not feeling really well. And so I go to my doctor. He checks me out and he prescribes a cure. He says, here's what I want you to do every day for the next week. I want you to eat three servings of vegetables and fruits. I want you to avoid all sweets and junk food of any kind. I want you to drink eight glasses of water. I want you to walk at least two miles a day. And I want you to take two pills, two of these pills every day. I say, okay, that sounds good to me. And on my way out, I am so thankful for my doctor. I turn to the receptionist and I say, you know, my doctor is the greatest. I mean, he's so good at what he does and I, he just makes me feel so cared for. I go home. The next day, I take one pill. I hate taking pills. I eat only one serving of vegetables, drink only three glasses of water, walk only one mile, and I end my day with a Snickers bar. <laughs> that will do, I say to myself, and I pretty much do the same thing the rest of the week. A week later, I return to the doctor's office. He says, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm not feeling so hot. And he said, man, that really surprises me because normally, you know, what I prescribe makes the difference. So did you do what I asked you to do? Well, sort of. What does sort of mean, he asks. Did you do what I said? Well, not completely. So you're telling me you didn't do what I asked you to do? I guess so. So tell me, do you want to get well? Well, of course I do. Well, then why didn't you do what I asked you to do? I mean, don't you trust me? And don't you have faith in me? Of course I do, Doc. I mean, you're the greatest doctor a person can ask for. And the doctor says, yeah, I heard you tell my receptionist that a week ago so if that's the case if I'm truly the greatest then why don't you trust me oh but I do trust you doc no you don't because if you did you would have done what I asked you to do you see this is the heart of what James is asking us in his letter do you trust Jesus enough to follow him without compromise and to do what he says? Do you believe that his way is the best way? That he knows what he's doing? Jesus told the story of a rich young ruler who came to him seeking the key to eternal life. And Jesus presented him with a test to see how committed he was to God. And he did quite well, except for one area. And so Jesus responded to him saying, one thing you still lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor and come follow me. In essence, Jesus said to him, your trust is in your possessions. Your security is in your possessions. It's in a counterfeit God. And it's keeping you from putting your trust fully in me. 
Now, you know, some of us, when we read that story, are inclined to think to ourselves, you know, Jesus, couldn't you have gone a little easier on this guy? I mean, couldn't you have said, you know, I'll just give 10% or 20% or even 50%? But you see, we have to understand that this isn't about money, so to speak. The reality is, Jesus wasn't being harsh with this young man. He was actually offering him the opportunity of a lifetime, if you look at it from Jesus' perspective. He was not only offering him the opportunity to inherit eternal life, which if you think about it, it's a pretty big deal, but he was also offering him the opportunity to enter into a relationship with Jesus and to discover the secret to the kind of life that he wasn't experiencing despite all of his wealth, a life that he was really longing for. He just didn't know how to get there. And Jesus was offering to help him get there. And he turned it down. He walked away from Jesus' offer. Why? Because he had a counterfeit God. Temporary stuff that he wasn't prepared to part with. His trust was misguided. And that's the very thing that kept him from trusting Jesus and following him. Which leads me to ask, is there anything that you're hanging on to with an iron fist that's keeping you from fully trusting Christ and doing what he calls you to do? That's the question that James would be challenging us with as we read and study our way through this book. I'll close with this. Patrick Morley says, many people today are blind to the sin of partial surrender. The partially surrendered life is a life which people believe Jesus can be Savior without being Lord. It is the idea that one can add Christ but not deal with sin and the counterfeit gods in our lives. The partially surrendered life adds Christ as one more interest in an already busy and overcrowded schedule. It is seeking the God we want rather than knowing and pursuing the God who is. It is wanting God to be a gentle grandfather type who spoils us and lets us have our own way. It is sensing our need for God but on our own terms. You know, when I was younger, I had this idea, and maybe it was because I, because I, I, I lived in a, a broken home. I'm not sure, but I had this idea that God had my worst interests at heart, that he was always mad at me, upset with me for not measuring up. And when I would read passages like the ones I quoted to you today from James, or I'd hear a sermon like the one that you've just heard. You know about not just hearing the word, but doing the word? I would feel even worse because I was convinced that, that God was disappointed with me and that he would punish me for not doing what he called me to do. And so the last thing that I wanted to do was to trust him last thing I wanted to do was to surrender my life to him. But as I matured in my faith, the truth of God's word began to sink in. The man, he loves me so much. Apart from anything that I do for him. Just this past week, I was I'm thinking about the day that I held each one of our newly born grandchildren. And you know, I, I would give my life for those little children. 
and yet they haven't done anything to prove their love for me. I love them. I would die for them just for being them. Just for being them. And slowly it began to register. That's how God sees you and me. He loves and accepts me just for being me. He wants me to trust him and surrender my life totally to him, not so that he can make my life miserable, but so our friendship can grow. And he can help me to be all that he created me to be. As I continued to read and study the scriptures and as I began to increasingly understand his nature, his character, I slowly came to the realization that he is a good God who has my best interests at heart in all things, whether I see it all the time or not. Even his negative commands are given for a positive purpose and with my best interests in mind. Even his challenges, you know, like the one to not just hear the word, but to do the word, is not intended to be a burden, but a blessing. An invitation, really, to join him in establishing his kingdom on earth in bringing a little heaven to earth and experiencing the full and the satisfying life that comes when you live a Christ-centered life. You see, the rich young ruler, he didn't realize the opportunity that he had just missed. It didn't register. He chose, relatively speaking, to eat food out of a garbage can when Jesus had prepared a feast for him. We will never, never regret embracing Jesus fully. We will never regret trusting him fully. He is a good and a gracious God who loves us more than we'll ever I mean, folks, that's the decision that all of us have to make, you see. Are we going to trust him or not? Are we going to believe this about him or not? Are we going to believe that he loves us like this, that he has our best interests at heart like this? Are we going to accept his invitation to experience all the faith-building adventures that he has in store for us the way that James did? that in the end will skyrocket our faith and our experience of him? Or are we going to go the way of the rich young ruler and hang on to our fears and our insecurities, our counterfeit gods? And to miss all that God has for us. Would you stand with me? we close, I just want us to open our hands before the Lord again and ask those two questions that we become accustomed to. Lord, what are you saying to me? Not what are you saying to the person next to me? Not what are you saying to, you know, what I hope you're going to say to the person over there, but what are you saying to me? And then secondly, Lord, what do you want me to do about it? What is the, the one step that you want me to take. Just spend some time reflecting on that. For some of you, you may feel God's nudging you to come down here to the altar or as a way of expressing your your desire to say no to partial surrender and to say yes to trusting him completely. Man, if that'll help you just to cement that, I just want to encourage you to just want to invite you to come just come right now and spend some time with him in prayer
Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your son Jesus and what he did on the cross for each one of us. And just for the reminder through the life of James how powerful and life-changing the resurrection is. To you be all the glory. Thank you for the life of James, the example that he was of the difference of a life that a life can make when we meet the real Jesus and surrender our lives to him and and follow him faithfully. Lord, I pray for those who even right now are having a conversation with you and are yielding their lives to you. Bless them, Lord. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. And for those who are still struggling with this issue of surrender, I pray, Lord, that you'll give them the courage to to trust you completely. That they will know, as James did, that you're alive that you love them with an everlasting love and that you are trustworthy. May they realize in a new way, Lord, that whatever they commit to you, they can trust you. You can trust you with completely. For I prayed in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.